Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and oh boy, I am fired up, rejuvenated after a solid four hours of sleep last night, but just, you know, flying on adrenaline right now and mainly just feeling energized by a very chaotic first round of the NBA playoffs. And joining me to break it all down, as always, is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Ooh, there is a lot to talk about. We were texting back and forth last night and, and kind of talking about what I had mentioned a few months ago as just kind of like a comment in passing about just because of how balanced the league was this year and the, the parody that had hit the NBA the last couple of years that it was shaping up to be a very NHL-like playoffs, a hockey-like playoffs where... You know, yeah, there are favorites and there are teams that should win, but you almost throw the seeding out the window. I mean, I know injuries have played a factor so far. It's not just because of how balanced it's been, but in a league where the margins between, I think, even contenders and like middling teams has really narrowed, that gap has narrowed, an injury really does make all the difference in the world. And uh, yeah, between the injuries, between the balance, here we are with the eight seed in the East up 3-1. The seven seed in the West up 3-1. Fun stuff all around. Yeah, so just to put some context behind what we're seeing right now. And I don't think that I missed any, but please correct me if I did. From what I can glean, since the NBA went to best of seven in the first round, which happened, I believe, in 2003, so exactly 20 years ago, there have been four instances that I can count in which a one seed or a two seed has lost in the first round. Four in 20 years. Uh, I've got the Mavs in 2007 losing to the We Believe Warriors. The Mavs again as a two seed in 2010 losing to the Spurs. That one wasn't really as big a mismatch as the seeding made it seem. There was only five games difference between them. Uh, 2011, the eight-seeded Grizzlies knocked out the one-seeded Spurs. And then in 2012, the eight-seeded Sixers knocked out the one-seeded Bulls when Derrick Rose tore his ACL in game one. I'm pretty sure that's the last time it's happened, way back in 2012. Am I am I missing anything, Cash? No, I think that sounds about right. I don't know if you follow her. She's uh, kind of a Raptors Twitter base, but tweets a lot of uh, good stats NBA-wide. I don't want to mispronounce her name, but uh, Kirthika, I believe is how you pronounce it, goes yeah, by she's at great. Kirthika U on Twitter. She tweeted last night that the Lakers are the first seven seed to be up 3-1 over a two seed in 13 years, and the Heat are the first eight seed to be up 3-1 since that 76ers team that you mentioned 11 years ago that beat the Derrick Roseless Bulls. So it's not even just like if those teams pull off the upsets, it's also just like the command they have over the series up 3-1. It's really remarkable. Yeah. So I think because of the situation, like it being these much lower seeded teams, in this case, to have the 3-1 leads, I think that that makes it more likely than typical that we might see a comeback from 3-1 down. It's obviously very rare. I think that, you know, the stat that's going around is like 95% of the time when a team's up 3-1, they go on to win the series. But the vast majority of the time a team is up 3-1, they are the higher-seeded team 
which means that they have at worst, you know, still two chances to win at home. Whereas in these cases, and there's a, a third scenario we can talk about, which is not a huge mismatch, uh, the four or five series between the Cavs and Knicks, but where where the higher seeded team is still going to only have to win one road game in order to make that comeback. And I think that makes it more likely. So I believe not, the actual percentage difference is, uh, it's not huge, but it is, I think it's like, not. yeah, you mentioned 95% when the higher seed has a 3-1 lead. I think it's like 88 I saw on Twitter, 88 or 89. So obviously still overwhelming, but there is yeah. a difference. What I kind of wanted to do is to to look at those three series in which the higher seeded team is down 3-1. Talk about how they got to this point and talk about why, how, or if the teams that are in those holes and on the ropes have any hope of coming back. And I figured we could talk about those series in order of how likely we think it is that a comeback will actually happen here. So I've ordered them myself. I'm actually curious to hear how you would order them. But I'm going to guess that for both of us, the most likely team to come back in this case is the Bucks, right? Yeah, I go Bucks first for sure. And that's a good place to start anyway, just because what we witnessed last night from Jimmy Butler, I mean, just another notch in his ever-expanding belt of all-time great playoff performances. And this might have been the best of all of them. Like, I just, I, I'm still in awe, in disbelief, 56 points on 19 of 28 shooting, 15 for 18 from the line, nine rebounds, including four on the offensive glass, two assists, a block, only one turnover. He did all that while basically guarding Giannis anytime Bam was on the bench. He cooked everybody that the Bucks threw at him, right? Like mainly that was Drew and he was, cooked yeah. Drew. When it was Middleton on switches, he cooked Middleton. Or or when Holiday was on the bench, which I think only happened for a few minutes in the second quarter. And like then Bud realized I should probably hard match the minutes here. And honestly, Giannis on switches, he like he gave everybody buckets. Nobody could stop him. He was doing it, you know, with pull-up jumpers, with driving layups and floaters. He scored out of the post, you know, like even on Giannis or Brooke when they were switched onto him. He just hit him with that bamboozling up fake of his and either score or get to the free throw line. Nobody could stop him. It was just a transcendent performance. And like down the stretch of that game, the Bucks were very much making a point of not switching Drew off of him. And Jimmy just took advantage of the seams it was creating when the Bucks were going to those lengths to avoid the switch. And whether that meant hedging and recovering or Drew just ducking way under the screen or sometimes both, he was able to, to find those gaps and attack them. And there was just like nothing that they could do. I mean, there was, there were maybe some things that they could do or could have done that we can talk about, but given the scheme that they were playing and how they opted to defend him, not just in this game, but really in this series as a whole, there was nothing they could do. And so as a result of that, just his relentlessness and some excellent defense from the heat and some very poor bucks offense down the stretch the Heat came back from 15 down late, late in the third quarter. They were still down 12 with under six minutes to play in the fourth. And at that point, they had trailed wire to wire. They had not led for a single second of the game. But then they went on this 13-0 run in like two and a half minutes 
to take their first lead. And then Butler's absurd self-creation and jump shooting pulled them over the finish line. They scored. Wait for it, Cash. 30 points over the final five minutes and 45 seconds of this game. And only five of those points were the result of intentional fouls. Butler scored 19 of them. Caleb Martin came up with some huge shots uh, and a massive offensive rebound late. Kyle Lowry made a couple tremendous defensive plays yeah, to force turnovers that led to runouts. Uh, and I thought Bam, who struggled offensively for most of the game, he hit some timely short roll jumpers and also like really tightened the screws on Giannis defensively down the stretch. And I think it was really, you know, on top of Jimmy's transcendent performance, those three guys who kind of stepped up to compliment him and help spur that late game run. And here we are, man, the Heat are up 3-1 after this kind of ho-hum regular season where they never really seem to be putting it together at any point. They lose their first play-in game at home to you know knock them out of the seventh seed and down to the eight they honestly like barely beat the bulls in the second they were losing most of that game and yet here they are up three one on the championship favorites yeah one of the most remarkable late game playoff turnarounds i can remember because usually when you have those kind of runs where this team just seems unstoppable rallying back and then they overtake the other team and they you know they're at home they they take the lead they win usually that's the higher seed that does that like that's the favorite doing that it's like uh they've been sleepwalking all night or they couldn't hit a shot or whatever but you know okay they're still the better team they can just catch a bit of a run except in this case it was the eight seed doing that and more remarkable is the fact they were already up to one so you just you just can't picture like, okay, the one, the number one overall seed with Giannis, you know, who a lot of people, I think ourselves included, think is overall the best player on the planet back in the lineup with kind of their backs against the wall. Can't go down three, one and they're in control pretty much wire to wire. Like there's not going to be a turnaround tonight. And yet the power of Jimmy mother effing Butler and yes, great heat defense, um, some more hilarious heat shooting, which I'll get into in a couple of minutes. Um, but just, yeah, no, remarkable, fun as hell game to watch. And even, you know, I mentioned that it's one of the more remarkable in-game, late-game playoff turnarounds I can remember. This is genuinely one of the most impressive individual playoff performances I have ever seen. When you consider the stakes, when you consider the fact that it is that Jimmy's team is an eight seed, again, with Giannis back from Milwaukee in a game they probably felt they had to win up 12 to 15 from late third quarter to mid fourth quarter, like for him to do what he did and also against the defenders he was doing it against and the defensive team he was doing it against to end up with 56 points in the efficient, insane manner. He put them up. What's more to say? Um, the ultimate 16 game player and taking nothing away from the fact that he is also an 82 game player. Like, yeah, he can coast from here and there during the regular season and put it on cruise control, but he's still like an all-NBA level star in that regular season. As I tweeted last night, even for a guy that good, other than maybe Kawhi, probably Kawhi, can you think of another player, star, whatever, that has the gear change Jimmy Butler seems to have between the regular season and the playoffs other than maybe Kawhi? And LeBron. Like, maybe not anymore because he's 38, but historically, LeBron. Historically, LeBron, yes. I'm talking right now in terms of like already great players who seem to have a genuine ability to hit another gear in the playoffs that like either they don't seem willing to or able to in the regular season well it's- as as i've posited before i 
firmly believe that Jimmy just tanks his own regular season numbers so that he can ratchet it up in the playoffs and just prove that he has that extra gear. Uh, whether you want to call that coasting or gamesmanship or I don't even know at this point, but like it's it's getting harder and harder to deny that playoff Jimmy is a completely different beast. Can I quickly throw out his stats for this yeah, series? Please do. Please do. Through four games, 36.5 points, 5.5 rebounds, five assists, 1.8 steals, 1.8 turnovers, 65% from two-point range, 53% from deep 1.29 points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler. I mean, come on. Yeah. What, what are we watching? I mean, we're watching a guy playing like the best player in the world, which again, not saying he is, but he's playing like it right now. He's playing like the type of guy where sometimes the team around it, like it doesn't make sense for them to have the success that they have. And yet they're capable of it because he's that good. You can, point to last year when they were the one seed that no one was really like believed in and then they what went seven like they were a game away and a couple they were a, they were a pull up three away from going, going to the, the finals. finals in 2020 when i think people I, I know yourself included thought they were playing above their heads and they came back to earth the following year but it was mostly because of how insane jimmy butler was now you mentioned what'd you say 53 percent from three that's right. Okay, so this is obviously part of it too. We always joke about how Jimmy. This is Butler, the story of the series so far, right? And I was going to say, not just joke, him, but the whole team, yes. right? We always joke yeah. about Jimmy Butler and how, like, he all of a sudden can hit his jumpers in the playoffs. But if you think about the Heat as a whole, if you remember anyone listening to our last show, I think after Game One, one of our last two shows, after Game One of that series when the Heat stole it and Giannis got hurt, and we both still said, even with Giannis out. We'd still lean Milwaukee, and a big part of it for me was just that the Heat had had, in terms of uh, their shooting performance versus their expected shooting performance based on location, shot quality, all that stuff, they had overperformed their shot expectations more than any team in the last five postseasons in Game 1, and that's that was the largest story of how they won, and I said, yeah, they might have a hot shooting night here and there, but they're not doing that again. Like They're not going to ride shooting to victory over the top-seeded Milwaukee Bucks. So I said that contrary. Yeah. I said that after game one. Keep in mind the Heat were 27th overall in three point percentage during the regular season at 34.4. They made 12 per game. Not a lot. That all happens in game one. I say what I say. Their last three games since then 13 of 32, 40%. 16 of 33, 48.5%. 16 of 36, 44%. They've shot over 40% in every game so far from deep after being one of by far the worst shooting teams in the league through the regular season. Obviously, Jimmy going from not a great jump shooter to (laughs) the best three-point shooter on earth uh, is a big part of that, but it's not just him. I don't know, man. Like, Yeah, I'd like to say, okay, that's enough now. Can't it can't continue, but at this point they only need one more of those outlier performances for them to have beat the best team in basketball record wise. So I don't know. I guess they could. Like who am I to say? Well, I mean, that is why they regardless of the fact that I think the Bucks are still a much, much better team, that's why they're still, you know, a heavy favorite to win the series, because they only need to do it one more time. And any team, even a bad jump shooting team, can get hot from three for one game. And we've already seen the Heat do it for four. Uh, And they have Jimmy Butler on their side. And I think, you know, generally just the formula of we're going to defend our asses off. 
and then kind of rely on Jimmy to carry us offensively is not a terrible one if the role players can keep shooting at an adequate level, you know, if not to the level they've done so far where they've hit 48% from deep as a team. But I think we've seen, you know, okay, so like the three-point shooting is the biggest reason why this is happening by far. But I just, it, it can't be stressed enough how insane it is even though it's only been four games and that crazy stuff can happen in small sample sizes, that they're at almost 121 offensive rating in the playoffs so far, which is the best of any team. This offense against this defense, even with Giannis missing time, it's just, it's vexing. It defies belief. Yeah. And I think, you know, they, they've done some interesting stuff on offense with Butler as a screener. Uh, because, you know, typically they know that the Bucks again, don't want to switch that. And when it's somebody like, you know, Gabe Vincent running the pick and roll or Lowry and like Grayson Allen is guarding them or even Middleton, who, again, has really struggled with the Butler lineup. And the Bucks are like staunchly avoiding that switch and keeping Holiday basically like stapled to Butler. Those guys are getting like a red carpet into the paint and they're able to play out of that. I also think something they've done, which they've had a little bit of success with, you know, not a ton, but I just think it's interesting. And I'm curious to see if they keep doing it is when they have Bam handling the ball and Brooke is like nowhere within, you know, 15 feet of him. He's just camping out under the rim. They're setting these like flat screens on Brooke at like the charge circle, like literally inside the restricted area. Mm -hmm. That's how low down they're setting those screens. And there was one time when like Brooke actually got hung up on one of those screens and still managed to recover to block Bam. Uh, there was another time when the Heat got a bucket out of it. I just think that's that's really interesting. And like, you know, in spite of the fact that I I don't think on on sheer talent the Heat can sustain this, they do have a an inventive coaching staff, and I sort of trust them to like find ways to make it work. Um, but obviously, like, you know, if the if the shooting falls off a cliff, which it very well might, then this series is going to look entirely different. And at the end of the day, I feel OK about the Bucks' ability to come back, first and foremost, because Giannis came back and looked Incredible. not much worse for wear. Like, I thought he was basically magnificent that entire game until the very, very end when it seemed like he ran out of gas a little bit. And I think a big reason for that is he just didn't get enough help from Middleton and Holiday. Those guys combined for 28 points on 37 totally used possessions. Like, just not good enough. And so those guys are going to need to be better if the Bucks are going to pull this off. But the 4-5 pick and roll with Giannis and Brooke was basically unstoppable. Like, that was, I think, the Bucks' most reliable source of, uh, of offense for that entire game. And I guess you could say that's a little bit discouraging if like they had to rely on that because they weren't getting enough from their guards. But I just thought, you know, like Giannis's playmaking was incredible and he really unlocked Brooke who had been a bit quiet, but was an absolute monster in game four. And the two of them together is what allows the Bucks to access their true identity as this jumbo team. And I think we saw that advantage for most of the game bear out in that like they were plus 14 in points in the paint they were punishing Miami inside they were uh, I think 16 to 9 on the offensive glass so 
you know, that's that's still a sustainable formula for them to win this series. And I think most importantly, something we talked about after game one, when Giannis wasn't there for most of the game, I was like, the, the Bucks had played like 88% of their possessions in the half court. And I was like, that's just not tenable. Giannis, we saw in that game, like allows them to access all of that early offense, like that low hanging fruit that they were leaving on the vine without him there. They like, they really need that. And if he's able to to continue doing that, like getting them into their offense early, getting them out in transition, then I think they still have, uh, you know, a, pr- a pretty damn good shot at coming back here. But, you know, to your point, their margin for error is completely evaporated, right? So it's not like the precedent matters. It's not even like, you know, the, the Bucks being the better team matters because the Heat only have to win one game. And uh, they do, you know, in spite of the fact that they this season were a poor offensive team and that the Bucks are a fantastic defensive team, they have some ways clearly to exploit the Bucks defense, right? Like they can find the soft spots in it. Butler can find the soft spots in it. Like they've dusted off Duncan Robinson so that his shooting oh, yeah. coming off of DHOs, you know, can be a really important antidote to that deep drop. And I don't think the Bucks did a good enough job, honestly, like making that untenable at the other end of the floor. Uh, but I think, you know, given another look at it, they probably can. And if, if Robinson isn't hitting like three quarters of his threes, then the math on that definitely changes. But, you know, to me, the biggest thing is like, they, have, they haven't been remotely capable of slowing down Butler one-on-one. And we know the Bucks are reluctant to come out of their base scheme, which this season has been pretty help-averse. Like, they trust their guys to defend in isolation. They trust their pick-and-roll defenders to defend those actions two-on-two. And they want to keep everyone else home to prevent catch-and-shoot threes. So I don't actually know if we'll see any significant adjustments there. Like, I wonder if just being more willing to give switches, but then turning them into immediate switch doubles to get the ball out of his hands, you know, is like a nice curveball maybe that they can throw at Jimmy. Cause I just think at a certain point they might need to make him see more bodies or at least see some different coverages. So we'll see on that. Duncan Robinson, by the way, 13 of 17 from deep in this series after being out of the rotation, he logged a few minutes in game one, has, has averaged 27 minutes over the last three games. Just a lot of, a lot of heat culture shit going on <laughs> Yeah, during this. And the one thing I'll say too is, because of how good playoff Jimmy is and has been in this series and is right now, even though I do think out of the teams we're going to talk about being down 3-1, the Bucs are obviously the most likely to come back. And it wouldn't even like shock me if they did. I will say there's something to the fact that like when a player is as good as when a superstar is as good as Jimmy is in the playoffs and and does have that kind of relentless, like indomitable spirit about him in the playoffs. It's not even just that's like, Oh, I don't think Milwaukee can beat Miami three straight. Cause they can't. It's that I, I have a hard time believing when he only needs to get one more that Jimmy Butler at the level he's playing at right now, will allow him his team to be beaten three times in a row now with like just needing one win to get the job done. So we'll see. I mean, look, I, I the Bucks should win at home with Giannis back now needing to win to keep their season alive. I, I really think they will. But man, that uh, 
Game six back in Miami, assuming the, the Bucks force it there, will be a slobber knocker. Like that's that'll be a great duel. But the Bucks gotta get there first. My last note on this game, not even necessarily a criticism so much because it, it is who he is. This like he doesn't call run stopping timeouts. But I did I was chuckling to myself, wondering whether Bud was gonna maybe go against his MO and call a timeout when the Heat were making that furious comeback down the stretch in the fourth. And I, I just ended up chuckling to myself like, you stubborn son of a... He is not the run-stopping timeout coach. He lets them play through it. Obviously, easy to play Monday morning quarterback or I guess point guard in, in basketball's case later. But I did get a chuckle out of it. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, I normally wouldn't have an issue with the way that they've chosen to defend Butler. Like going under screens against him, like not over-helping and giving him those playmaking opportunities, forcing him to just do everything for them on offense. I, you know, on its face, I don't think it's bad strategy, but just <laughs> like he keeps doing what he's been doing. I think at a certain point, you got to make an adjustment. And I'm curious to see if they do or what that might look like moving forward. But I also think that like something as simple as the, the three is just not dropping to the same extent for Miami. Again, like Jimmy had to do all of that in a game that the Heat had to come back to win basically by one possession before free throws kicked in. You know, like, that's... I still think on the whole, the Bucks are just way better. So all of this is to say, like, yes, this is an extremely precarious situation for Milwaukee. But I'd say even given the hole they're in, and this is maybe going to sound insane considering the history of 3-1 leads that we alluded to, but I'd still only put Miami's chances of winning this series at, like... I don't know, 65, 35, something like that. I, no. I think the Bucs have a very good chance to come back and win. No, I agree. Is what I'm I agree. Saying, which I, I don't feel about these other two series. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll put it to you then, Cash, and we can uh, decide which one to talk about next based on how you feel. I have my opinion, but of the other two series, uh, Lakers, Grizzlies, and Cavs, Knicks, which trailing team do you think has a better chance of coming back? The Cavs, because I think the Cavs are the better team in that series, where I think, whereas I think the Lakers, yeah. despite being the seventh seed, are the best. I think the Lakers are better than the Grizzlies. I I thought they would win this series. So I Well, the Cavs are healthy, I think, is the most important And that's also, yes, a big of part of it. So if we're going to go in order of the teams um, who I think could come back from 3-1 down, then let's talk Cavs-Knicks, because, uh, yeah, that's been interesting for its own reasons. You know, one thing I wanted to mention... And it, it works because of all the teams we're talking about in the series we're talking about today. So the Knicks defense size off like the Cavs offense has their own issues and we'll get into that. But the Knicks defense has been great. And what I find interesting is that I've said before that, you know, the, the playoffs are more about like exposing your flaws and like kind of showing what you, you aren't. Whereas the regular season, you know, whatever things can happen. But what I think is so interesting is the playoffs also really remind us who these teams are. And, if you look at the teams we're talking about today, so like the Knicks are a perfect example. I think we were both somewhat flummoxed throughout the regular season about why this Knicks team, Thibodeau coached, that seemed to have a pretty good defensive infrastructure in place, why they weren't as good as they could be defensively while somehow managing a fourth-ranked offense that didn't really make a lot of sense. Yes, Brunson helped everything. Randall had this just insane year, but the bones of this team should not have been top four in offensive efficiency. And they probably should have been a lot better than 17th defensively. Um, the Heat, 
okay, yes, they relied on a lot of shooting luck, and that's not necessarily them, but I think the Heat are the type of team where we know, like, they are scrappier, they have the superstar, a great coach that are, no matter how the season goes, like, that's not an eight-seed type team. That is a team that can just annoy the shit out of someone in the playoffs, maybe pull an upset, and then, like, the playoffs start, and here they are. The Grizzlies, not taking anything away from their success, but how many times the last two or three years have we talked about how, like, as good as we think they might be, on paper, they don't seem like they should be as good as they actually end up being. And I got to the point this year where I was finally just like, look, they keep proving me wrong. At some point, I just have to believe in how good they are. But it's been a bit of a different story in the playoffs. And I think even them, it's like the playoffs have a way of reminding us whether it's their half-court limitations. Yes, in this case, injuries too. I don't see like an elite team necessarily on paper, but they also keep finding a way to get it done. They have enough there. I guess they're going to be elite. But then when the playoffs start, it's like, no, but this is the team I kind of envisioned from the beginning where they're not actually... Okay, I know that you're I know you're driving at a, at a different point here, but I just have to say, I thought the Grizzlies were really good in the playoffs last year. Like, I... They, you know, they, that, they, they were, but they also... Like, that series against Minnesota was pretty iffy. Yes, they their execution in that series against Minnesota was definitely suspect at times. You saw their inexperience, but they made it through that series, and I think they played the Warriors really tough. And if Ja doesn't get hurt, who knows what happened? But I, I think they gave the Warriors a stiffer test than they got from anybody else in that postseason run. And I think it's unfair to say, you know, because they're losing this series when they're down two crucial rotation players. And their best player is like badly injured and playing through it. I don't think it's fair to say, you know, they are who we thought they were. Not all the way there. I think a little bit they are who I thought they were. And I think, like I said, uh, between them, the Heat, and the Knicks, especially who we can talk about now, where like their offense defense balance in terms of performance didn't really make sense for what they had in the regular season. But now it's like, then the playoffs started. It's like, oh, yeah, well, this is more the Knicks team that we w- could have envisioned, not being up 3-1 in the first round, but with a really solid, hardworking defense that struggles to create consistent offense. But here they are. Their defense has them in the game. So yeah, let's let's talk Cavs, Knicks. I mentioned those Cavs offensive issues. So in addition to like the usual stuff with that fifth starter, small forward, wing spot, whatever you want to call it, their bigs are being exposed a little bit in terms of their offensive limitations. And and that is hampering the offense a bit between Allen and Mobley. Mobley, I mean, I talked about it late in the year during the regular season. I thought his individual offense really came on strong as the season went on after a good like team offensive start. But even him, I think his limitations are being exposed a bit now. So I'll throw it over to you and ask, how do you think the Knicks have gotten the Cavs out of their offense with them? And more specifically, how do you think they've gotten Mitchell? out of his rhythm do you think it's just a matter of yeah they're defending well but he's also just like not hitting shots and it's one of those things or do you think there's like a residual effect from the issues going on elsewhere within the Cavs offense a uh, little column a little column b little column c i don't know how many columns you threw out there but it's a bit of everything definitely every aspect of the Cavs offense and to an extent their defense too is being affected by that inability to find the fifth guy. And it's like a massive trickle-down effect. And this is really what I was concerned about with this team going into the playoffs. They don't have, like for a team that is already starting two 
non-shooting bigs and two guards who, while they have fought really hard and been pretty effective defensively at points this season, are still undersized and are going to get hunted in a playoff setting. So you have a you know defensively vulnerable backcourt and a front court that can't space the floor for you. And what you really need in between those two elements is like a bridge, somebody that can defend and shoot, and they just don't have that guy. So it's not like we didn't foresee this being an issue. I don't know that I saw it impacting them this much this early in the playoffs. Like I I still kind of expected them to get through this series because of advantages that I felt like they had elsewhere. But it's in terms of just like the level of neglect that the Knicks are showing when it's one of those non-shooters on the floor, like specifically when it's a Coro is making it just really difficult for anybody else to get into uh, like a flow. Like their pick and roll game just isn't that effective because, you know, the tag is coming from wherever a Coro is standing. Like it doesn't matter weak side, strong side, right? Like there's that old adage that you hear sometimes, like you can't help from one pass away or you can't help from the strong side corner. Those aren't real rules. Like that gets thrown out the window when there's an offensive player that, uh, you know, a team feels comfortable disrespecting to that level. And like, they want to dare them to make shots because it's, the best option like would you rather not help off the strong corner and like open up the skip pass to the weak side that donovan mitchell and darius garland are both very capable of making you know especially if there's going to be a better shooter stationed in that corner or do you want to just plant you know the strong side corner defender right in the middle of the floor and dare them to just make the easy pass to the corner and let isaac okoro shoot all day yeah um so I think, you know, it's affecting the guards in that way, especially just because what that allows the Knicks to do is like put two on the ball whenever they feel like it and trust that like, okay, it's a three on four for their defense on the backside. But considering what a non-factor a Coro is as a shooter, it feels a lot more like a three on three. And to his credit, I thought he did some good stuff kind of like attacking baseline and cutting out of the corner in that last game. But on the whole, it just... I don't, the, the Knicks just aren't worried about him. And so that's affecting the ball handlers because they're having to see traps and there's like no obvious right play to make out of it. And also they're like their drives are just getting stymied time and time again. But it's also, a ta- uh, you know, it's, it's really affecting the bigs in terms of their short roll game. And to this point, I will say it's like they just need to be better. Like they need to understand where the help is coming from, and how to beat it. And I think there have just been like way too many record scratches for them. Like in terms of the passing reads, the passing execution, the overall decision-making, like they have let too many of those windows close or they've just turned the ball over. They've like had instances where they try to go through the help and they can't score, they can't finish. Um, You know, like I, I don't mind them trying to do that rather than make the easy kickout pass if the easy kickout pass is going to go to like a shooter, like a Coro or Ricky Rubio or whoever else, that's another thing. The Cavs, for whatever reason, decided to play a Coro and Rubio at the same time yeah. last game. That should just like never, ever happen again. Um, I don't think Rubio really has a role in this series, but as much as I think this is a roster construction issue at the end of the day, 
it's also about these guys just needing to play better. And I think that starts with like Allen and Mobley on the short roll. I've just not been a fan of how they've handled those situations. And, you know, they have also just gotten punked on the glass, frankly. Um, Even though I don't think the rebounding issue falls entirely on them. Like a lot of it is about the Cavs defensive help principles and how they're always bringing one of those guys over like basically to the opposite side of the paint to overload the strong side when Brunson has the ball up top. And that basically relies on a smaller player, you know, like a Mitchell or a Garland or a Levert to like play between two guys on the weak side and to sink down and like really box out. And that's just not the forte of those guys. Right. So it's not just about Mobley and Allen. Part of it's a scheme issue, but also they've kind of just gotten punked even when it's just like them trying to box out Randall or Mitchell Robinson. And if we had done a preview episode, which we didn't get to do because I fell ill, one of the big spotlights was going to be like the Knicks were the second best offensive rebounding team in the league during the regular season. And the Cavs, despite starting this jumbo front court, were actually one of the worst defensive rebounding teams in the league. And that's been a huge story of the series, just how badly they've gotten beat up on their own glass. So, um, the bigs need to be better. Like the, you know, we can talk about some things the guards can do, I guess, to get off the schneid a little bit, but um, the Knicks have been working them so far. And I, I kind of agree with you in that. I still think even, you know, despite all this evidence to the contrary, I still kind of feel like the Cavs are the better team, but it's, I mean, like they really just don't have a lot outside of those top four no, guys I know. and it's, and it's a big, big problem. Yeah. And then, yeah, for the Knicks, I mean, look, they've gotten pretty much nothing out of Julius Randle offensively. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Dude, he didn't top and close the last game over and played like the he, whole fourth quarter. Yeah, he didn't. Randle didn't play in the fourth quarter. They've gotten pretty much nothing from him. And yet they're up 3-1. Like, one, obviously the defense has shown up. But two, like, Jalen Brunson is just a star. Like, he is legit a star. And I think what's so remarkable about him is that his profile as a player is actually the type that you would assume struggles in the playoffs. He is a somewhat undersized offensive guard who's pretty defensively challenged. And yet, two playoffs in a row now, he's shown the opposite, that he actually raises his game and is able to do that in ways most guys of that profile are not able to do. So just kudos to him, the season he's had, but also the last two playoffs he's had and and him being able to overcome those apparent limitations that haven't limited him at all when the stakes are highest. Yeah, and I mean, to that point, the Cavs don't have a good answer for him defensively except for Okoro. And that's why it kind of, like when you asked me last time if I saw them just benching Okoro and starting with Levert, I was like, I still kind of think that they're going to start with Okoro because... Like, it doesn't make sense for them to bring him off the bench to play with these transitional lineups where Brunson might not even be on the floor. Yeah. Like, then really, what's the point of having him out there? Yeah. Right? So, it's like, if I if they're going to bench him and just not play him at all, okay, that's one thing. I don't think they can afford to do that because they just don't have enough good players. So, it's like you might as well start him and get the benefit of like the one thing that he can do that will really help you in terms of slowing down the opposing team's best player. Like, yeah, they're still going to try and screen him off and like they're going to attack Mitchell and Garland in guard-guard action just like they've been doing all series. But like 
to still have a Coro there as a guy who's sticky and can get around screens and actually like cause some problems for Brunson as an isolation defender. I think you still want to have that uh, in your back pocket and bringing him off the bench just makes that a lot more difficult. And like, you may remember I, I cautioned against thinking the Cavs had found the answer when they turned to Levert for 40 minutes in game two. And he rewarded them with the monster performance because like I said, he runs hot and cold. Yeah. And since that game two, he has been cold. And I actually think as much as I think he's been fine defensively on the ball, I think his off-ball defense has been a problem. Like those situations that I mentioned where their guards slash wings have to sort of split the difference between two guys on the weak side, I think he's been really bad at that. And that's that's caused a lot of problems. But defense hasn't really been the issue for them. Like the Knicks have had almost as hard a time scoring as they have. Um, their offensive rating, the Knicks offensive rating in the series is 105.1. For Cleveland, it's 101.3. And for reference, the Hornets finished dead last in the regular season at 108.4. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Cavs are currently operating seven points per hundred worse than the worst regular season offense. We are getting dangerously close to the clock being turned back to the 90s with a Heat Knicks second round series. And not only in the matchup, perspective it's turning being turned back to the 90s from a basketball perspective it would be turned back to the 90s too because a matchup of this heat team and this Knicks team with their strengths and weaknesses for the right to get to the most unlikely conference finals berth in recent memory would be I've I've mentioned the word slobber knocker a couple times over the last couple weeks it would be a slobber knocker of a different caliber not necessarily because it's like two elite teams you know like a heavyweight battle, but more so just because it would be so grimy and defensive. But honestly, I'm ready for it if we get it. Um, I'll ask you before we get to Lakers, Grizzlies, and the and the rest of our show. I wasn't planning on asking you this because I know how much you hate this stuff, but I'm only asking you because you volunteered on your own a percentage for the Bucks coming back. I think you put it okay. at 35. So now I gotta ask you. So if the Bucks, if you peg the Bucks as like a 35% chance of coming back from 3-1 down, what are the caps? 15? Yeah, all right. 15 to 20, somewhere in that range. Give them 20. That feels about right. I mean, again, they only have to win the one road game. You know, if they can find a way to squeak one out in MSG, obviously they got to win game five at home, you know, squeak one out in MSG and bring it home for a game seven. Like, it doesn't feel that outlandish, but it's also just given the way the series has gone and the struggles that they've had with a very well-prepared Knicks team that has come in with a clear game plan and executed it to near perfection. And that's in spite of the fact that like, you know, their offense again has been almost equally terrible. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Like you, would you say that's more encouraging or discouraging for the Cavs that they, you know, are in this hole despite the Knicks having such a poor offensive showing like part of that's the Cavs defense, which has also been really good, but Part of it's also that like the Knicks can't buy a three and Randall just hasn't really looked right. And no, I, I would say discouraged because for me, you know, if I'm a Cavs player, part of their staff, fan, whatever, the discouraging part would be, okay, look, the, the D has shown up and been pretty much what they've been all season, but we're down because of the issues we were worried might sink us this season. And that has to be discouraging. All right, let's uh, take the break there. We'll come back. We'll talk about Lakers, Grizzlies, and some other news and notes. 
What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash, so I am actually in agreement with you that of these three series, it goes Bucks, then Cavs, then Grizzlies in terms of likelihood of a comeback. And, you know, that might seem surprising, I guess, because the Grizzlies were a really good regular season team. They were the two seed, like... it seems like they should have at least as good a chance as Cleveland of coming back. But I just think given the state of their roster, like the health, obviously being without Adams, being without Clark and, and Jaw being in the state that he's in, I think it's going to be really, really tough for them to pull this off. I do expect them to win game five at home. You know, they've been dynamite at home all season. I thought obviously they figured some things out in that game four in LA that they probably should have won to be honest but the fact that they did lose that game and now have this mountain to climb three straight games to win against a team that has kind of beaten them up it's it's tough for me to see but um let's uh let's lay out kind of what's happened so far and we can maybe try to make the case for them potentially bringing it all back what what's been the biggest story in this series so far to you it's that The Lakers have managed to build a commanding series lead without needing LeBron to be otherworldly. Now, I say that after he had a fantastic performance in Game 4, and he deserves all the credit in the world, but we talked after Game 1 about how the ball was in Austin Reeves' hands down the stretch. The two games they've won in LA, LeBron has been great, but again, it's not like they've needed LeBron to be otherworldly while the rest of the team doesn't seem up to the task. I think the biggest story for me is the fact that the Lakers supporting cast looks plenty capable of helping LeBron and AD. I mean, AD was pretty awful last night also. Offensively, offensively. Offensively awful. awful. Good point. Appeared to have heard a sip. But yeah, that, that to me is the biggest story because it's one thing if like, LeBron is playing absolutely out of his mind and the rest of the team doesn't team up to the task. But the way the Lakers have played, again, I think there's an argument here that they are just the better team overall. That the post-deadline version of the Lakers are the better squad. I think they're proving it so far through four games. Now, having said that, obviously shout out LeBron. 38 years old, all those miles on his body with a foot that apparently needs surgery after this season is done. Puts up a 22-20 and game. Now, not the most efficient LeBron playoff game. 22 points on 21 shooting possessions, but still. Seven assists, only one turnover in 45 minutes. Two blocks. Comes up absolutely huge down the stretch of regulation and in overtime. He's old, but he's still pretty good, Dylan Brooks. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I will get to LeBron in just one second because I thought it was a really interesting game from him. And maybe indicative of the the shape that like an epic LeBron performance will take at this stage of his career but to me the biggest story of this series so far is just that the Lakers pick and roll defense continues to absolutely smother the Grizzlies like they're just not getting good stuff out of their basic pick and roll actions and like the one thing I, I looked at is like okay Scoring efficiency on possessions finished by the pick-and-roll ball handler, 
The Grizzlies are at 0.72 points per possession. That's dead last among all playoff teams so far. Their offensive rating as a whole uh, is 104.7. That's third last among playoff teams. We mentioned the Hornets, you know, the worst in the regular season. We're at 108.4. So that gives you an impression of how much the Grizzlies have struggled to score. And a lot of it is just like they can't really bust that Lakers drop. And I think Anthony Davis, like even last night when he, like you said, was putrid offensively, I thought was still massively impactful as a defender. And the Grizzlies as a team just like can't finish at the rim in this series. They are 57.8% inside the restricted area. That is second worst among all playoff teams. And that drops to 48.6% when AD is contesting at the rim. So like they still just haven't really found a way around him. And I mentioned this before when I talked about them, but like I just, obviously you felt the Adams absence on the offensive glass. Like that's been a huge thing, but the bigger one to me is just the screening. And I found like, there's so many plays where it just feels like the Grizzlies are whiffing on their screens and like, they like to ghost a lot. So some of that is by design. But even when they like try to make the screens hit, I just feel like they aren't getting enough separation and creating enough advantage with them. And more than anything, I think it's like the Gortat screens, like, you know, where the big man will basically go down, like set the initial screen and then seal his own guy with a pick. So the ball handler can snake the pick and roll and get all the way to the rim. That's like a really good counter to drop coverage. And the Grizzlies have done that basically not at all. And Adams does that better than almost anybody, maybe better than anybody at this point, now that, you know, Gortat is no longer in the league. The guy who pioneered that screen, like, I think they've really missed that. And that's made it harder for them to get their guards, like, runways to the rim and, and finish there, like, with somebody who can kind of wipe AD out of the play. So that's been a big thing. Like, I just think they need to find, like, more drop counters. And I thought they started to do that in the second half of game four, mainly with Bain, where they'd been running him through like a lot of kind of like static action where he's initiating from a standstill, like running pick and roll from the top. And they started like slingshotting him off of wide pin downs. And like, sometimes I would get him an open catch and shoot three, but sometimes they'd have him curling into the middle and like get him some momentum going to the rim. And that was when he, he sort of started to like get going going downhill um like hitting jump shots was a big part of that but like getting him into the paint for some interior scoring opportunities i thought was big so they, they need to find some more counters like that to, to bust the lakers drop because that to me has been the biggest story so far like their their pick and roll defense has just like completely annihilated memphis's offense and you know i also think the grizzlies have a bit of a dylan brooks problem a bit Almost in the same way that the Cavs have an Isaac Okoro problem. Yeah. Like, it's starting to feel that way to me, where they very clearly need his defense out there. But the Lakers are ignoring him on offense to the point that it, it becomes hard to play him. Like, it really congests the floor for a Grizzlies team that doesn't have a ton of shooting around him. And I think they've made things harder on themselves at times with, like, some questionable offensive process where like in that game three, where they just got shellacked in the first quarter and never threatened again, there were a couple of plays where like they're running 
double ghost ball screen action. And the second guy who's ghosting and flaring up to the three-point line is Dylan Brooks. And like, yeah, the Lakers don't care about that. Like it was D'Angelo Russell guarding him and he just stayed with the ball. And then the pass goes out to Dylan Brooks and it's like, okay, the Lakers do not care if Dylan Brooks catches the ball above the break at all. And, you know, Desmond Bain is literally on the floor while this is happening. It's like, okay, why don't, <laughs> why don't you run that action with Bain being like the second ghost screener running out to the three-point line? Like, I know that makes it a more natural switch, but the whole point of ghosting is that if the defense is going to switch, there's going to be a big crease there. And so they're able to like the, the reason that the Grizzlies do it a lot is like they're able to play the threat of Jaws drive off of the the movement shooting threat of like either Bain or Jaron Jackson, basically. When it's Dylan Brooks, who's ghosting and flaring out to three, doesn't really work <laughs> in the same way. So, you know, whether it's that or just like honestly stationing him above the break, period, like any time that he's standing there, like even if he's not involved in the action, the his guy is just dropping down to bump the roll and like daring jaw to skip it to him. So I don't know really what they do with that because again, like they need him out there for defense, but it may be becoming untenable offensively. Yeah, and the dilemma that comes with Brooks being such a key component of their defense, probably the second most valuable component of their defense, is that it leads to the issues with their offense, specifically their half-court offense, which is probably the biggest reason I don't think they can win as presently constructed. So during the regular season, they were at 96.9 points per 100 plays in half-court offense. That was 22nd. So far in the playoffs, 86.2 the only teams worse, both the Cavs and the Knicks. Just phenomenal basketball in that series. <laughs> um, so again, that to me is the biggest flaw there. I wrote about it before the play. I was like, that, if there's one reason they can't win, that's it. And now it's limiting them from even being able to beat the seven seed as a two seed. Although again, acknowledging that it's not a traditional two seven. Um, and yeah, like Adams is huge between his screening and his offensive rebounding, getting them second chances and third chances sometimes after missing their initial shot in half court. He's a big part of that. But like, you'd like to be able to survive somewhat offensively without Steven Adams in there. And they have not. And it's it's a problem, man. And we'll have plenty of time to talk about offseason plans and all of that if and when they're finally eliminated, if the Lakers do it. But they have some hard questions to answer. And the biggest one is related to Dylan Brooks because, you know, off-court stuff be damned. Like, just talking about the on-court dilemma, there is a big one with that comes with the offense-defense trade-off. In terms of the off-court stuff, I mean, Dylan Brooks is hiding from the big bad media now. <laughs> Mr. Duck I'm, in the smoke. Yeah, exactly. Mr. All about the smoke, suddenly duck in the smoke. Mr. Literally, I poke bears. Apparently, he thinks the biggest bear and the baddest bear is the media. <laughs> Mr. Please make me a villain because it makes me more famous until I get ejected and then I want to blame the media and fans for making me a villain. Dude, Yeah, I like you, Dylan Brooks, but you are an offensively challenged defensive role player. You are as well-known as you are because of the things that you say and the way you conduct yourself in the media and around the game and off the court and the things you say to other players and calling LeBron and all that stuff. So... It's actually worked for you from that perspective. 
Just own it. That's fine. Don't then blame the media and fans for giving you that reputation that you have gone out of your way to cultivate for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting too that on that last play of regulation, he wasn't guarding LeBron. He was guarding yeah. Austin Reeves. Yeah. And that almost said to me that like the Grizzlies were more concerned about Reeves as like a scoring threat. I think part of it is like, okay, a two can't beat us, right? A three can beat us. Let's make sure we don't give up a three. There's some logic to that. And I think, you know, Tillman guarded LeBron for a bunch of possessions in the game. Even on the possession that LeBron hit that game tying layup, I don't think he did a bad job. Like Dude, LeBron he, had to put that ball so high. Like that was such a difficult shot yeah. that the Grizzlies had forced them into. He just hit it. Tip your hat to LeBron. And so Brooks was guarding Reeves on the strong side wing, and he did come over with like a pretty aggressive stunt. But again, you don't want to give up the three. That's the one shot that can beat you. So you can't fully commit. So LeBron ultimately kind of beats that stunt gets all the way to the rim. Then on the back line, Jaron comes over to help. Like I saw a lot of people dragging the Grizzlies for the way they defended that last possession. I think it was fine. I think LeBron just made an amazing play and an amazing finish over the best rim protector in the league coming over to help. Like maybe it was the help a tad bit late, like I guess maybe, but he did that after, as we had been talking off air last night about how he had been deferring pretty much all fourth quarter, including on some really big, last minute possessions where it seemed he had a lane to the rim and still deferred and found others. So completely understandable why up to with the ball in the bronze hands, you're not going to bring the help as aggressively. Yeah. And look, that was his only bucket of the fourth quarter. Yeah. Uh, and it was amazing. He was just like, like you said, deferring. There were a bunch of times where I thought I was starting to get concerned because he was running, you know, inverted pick and roll, which we've seen him do a million times with with Schroeder and Reeves basically down the stretch. And Morant and Bain are the guys who are, who are guarding those two. So they're hedging to avoid the switch. And like LeBron was just looking to get off the ball right away. And there are times I think like objectively that was the right play. They ran, you know, an empty corner pick and pop with him and Reeves. Reeves like flared to the corner. It was two on the ball. Easy kick to Reeves for a three, right? But there were other times when it was like they were running it at the top. And I thought, despite the hedge, like LeBron definitely had a gap to attack where he could have taken the ball to the rack. And instead, he got off the ball really early and just kicked it to Schroeder with like not much of an advantage. And it wound up in an empty trip. And I was thinking like, man, this is like he's just being really passive. And then he gets that really, really difficult layup to fall. Then also, by the way, hits like a three-quarter court heave. Did you see this? After AD yeah, after blocked, the, blocked after jaw at the buzzer. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in overtime, he had that that drive plus the foul over Brooks to basically ice the win. Um, but I thought, I mean, look, I mentioned before, maybe this is just sort of like the shape of a dominant LeBron game now. Like it's not you know, dominating as a scorer necessarily, not even like playing on the ball a ton, but more just being like a facilitator, a connector, even a decoy in some situations and still winds up with like 22, 20 and seven because he low key dominated in like the margins of this game. I thought where I thought he did a really nice job guarding Jaron down the stretch. And when he was switching, he was doing it with force, like switching up into guys. And I actually thought the threat of those aggressive switches like deterred Memphis a little bit from running pick and roll with Jaron 
in the fourth quarter. And then, you know, he drew two charges on Ja in this game, including one in transition that almost killed both of them. And he pulled down five offensive boards. One of them was just like huge tap out that saved a possession with a couple minutes left. And that possession ended with AD at the free throw line to give the Lakers a late lead. He was a menace on the glass all night at both ends. Um, and then, you know, that play in overtime to ice the win. Like I just, you kind of had to marvel at it, even though it was sort of like concerning and weird at yeah. points in terms of his like disconnection from the offense. At the end of the day, like he found a way to just make huge winning plays in other areas and his ability to do that while clearly hobbled and clearly old, like I think it, it is uh, worthy of flowers most definitely. Yeah. Also shout out those back to back to back D'Angelo Russell triples in the fourth quarter. D'Lo did not have a great game, ended up fouling out, but he'd been awful up yeah, to that point. Awful. And then also fouled out. But those three shots just proved huge in yeah. the grand scheme of things. The Lakers went from down eight to up one, I believe. Uh, yeah, no, down down seven to up two. It was 97-90 when he came in, and then he hit those three threes to make it 99-97. Um, but then, you know, he fouled out, and Rui Hachimura came in and finished the game really strong. And this is like another thing that I think has been a huge storyline in this series is the Lakers bench is not very deep. Like the guys who have contributed meaningfully off their bench this series is really just like Rui, Schroeder, and Troy Brown. And even Troy Brown is like averaging a couple of points. But yeah. I think he's he's made some like pretty impactful defensive rotations and been just good enough as like an offensive connector. But really, it's like Hachimura and Schroeder. And then you look at the Grizzlies bench and like it's way deeper just in terms of the type of guys who you would think of as being playable in a playoff series. And they're getting shellacked, man. Like the, it, it's again, almost like the Cavs in that their starters are performing quite well, but every transitional lineup is just getting destroyed. And, you know, it, it would certainly help if Tyus Jones could hit a shot. He's one for 13 from three in the series and not to beat a dead horse, but like, it would be nice to have Kyle Anderson and DeAnthony Melton right now. Like, yeah. I know I keep bringing that up, but I just... I felt from the beginning that they got a little too cute in the offseason, thinking they could let those guys go and replace them through like internal development and a couple new draftees. And obviously they couldn't have predicted they'd be without two key rotation pieces and that their best player would be playing through an injury in the playoffs. But like, that's the point of having depth, right? So yeah. I, I didn't like at the time the Grizzlies choosing to diminish theirs. And like, yeah. you know, all due respect to Santi Aldama and David Roddy, who have had their moments, like, they're just getting soundly outplayed. And, you know, to the to the Lakers point, like, I just think I'm I'm amazed at how good Rui Hachimura has been. Like, yep. first time on this stage in a, you know, a, a, a situation, I think, where it can be difficult for players to, like, find their niche, right? And just his shot making and honestly his defense, too, off of the bench. Like, you can't say enough about how huge that's been for the Lakers. Yep, good for him. Okay, so quickly, what do we think about the Grizzlies' chances of, of coming back here? Like, 8%. I wanted to say 10, but even that feels too much. I, I would be comfortable going higher than that if I wasn't really? worried about Jaw's hand. Like, he fell hard on that hand again. In Is it a shooting four. hand? Yeah. What? Oh, fuck off. <laughs> oh, man. 
If it was his finger, I was going to ask if it was his trigger finger. There you go. Um, like he basically after <laughs> I'm leaving that there. Basically after he fell on that shooting hand in game four, he gutted it out, but he was dribbling like almost exclusively with his left yeah. and somehow still managed to make some spectacular plays, including that lefty dunk on Rui, like right before the third quarter buzzer after he split a double team. Yeah. And then chest um, pumped his dad. That was a great moment, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it was. The first person to greet him <laughs> after the buzzer beating dunk was his dad. Great stuff. Um, yeah. Like he, he still found a way to make plays. Like he, he had some wicked lay down passes and I thought, you know, did enough to to keep the Grizzlies offense going a little bit down the stretch of that game, but he still shot eight for 24. He's still like the rest of the Grizzlies struggling to finish at the rim in this series. He's at 25% from floater range. And that's such an important shot for him. And I just imagine that on a shot like that, that is just entirely predicated on touch. It's got to be hard to find the touch on that shot when your hand is basically swollen to shit and like completely busted for all intents and purposes. So, yeah, if he was right, if he was like 100%, I'd actually I, I'd bump this number up quite a bit higher, but I would probably land around the 10% range as well. So let's leave that there. Quickly hit on some other news and notes, and then we'll get out of here. A couple of like major injury bummers in a postseason that has been full of them. There's been some great basketball, some entertaining series, and a lot of unpredictability that we, that we don't usually get in the NBA playoffs. And it just unfortunately feels like it's been overshadowed by the magnitude of some of these injuries. And now we're looking at a situation where De'Aaron Fox, who in his first foray onto the postseason stage, has been as good as you could have possibly imagined. Timely shot making, I mean, drives to the rim, transition runs, like defending his ass off. And... He now has this fracture in his right index finger that he's listed as doubtful for game five. I feel like he's going to find a way to play. Yeah. But like... I don't know, you know, what that's going to mean for his effectiveness, especially because as much as he's a guy who thrives on speed and like loves to drive to the rim, his jump shooting in this series has been like maybe the most important component of Sacramento's offense, especially in the in crunch time yeah and his shot making in crunch time has been a big part of their success this season yeah so if he can't play or just can't be himself i mean it's really hard to overstate how devastating that is for yeah. what's been such a feel-good king season and a king season that frankly and this has been a big part of their success has been like untouched by a significant injury i mean i guess sabonis has also been playing through like a torn thumb ligament but yeah. they haven't had important guys who have had to miss any significant time all year and to get hit with this now not only just for the kings but like for all of us as basketball fans i i don't imagine there's anyone who hasn't just enjoyed watching every single game of this series it's been so entertaining such a fun fast style of play and like watching fox and, and steph go head to head down the stretch of these games has been one of the biggest thrills um they, like this series needs him so yeah, Fox has been awesome. This series has been breathtaking. I'm really hoping against hope that he can still be De'Aaron Fox if he does play, but a fractured finger on your shooting hand for a guy who has the ball in his hands and, and shoots as much as he does, I like guess that's going to be tough, man. And now being in a best of three against the defending champs, like it's, it's tough, unfortunate, but really tough break. 
tough break, no pun intended. Um, Joel Embiid, another huge bummer because once again, this guy just cannot get through a postseason run unscathed. It's just, yeah, I don't know. See, he, he 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 was too proud, and the basketball gods didn't appreciate it, and they have done everything in their power to humble him time after time after time. Some people might say he flops a lot and that's him getting his comeuppance, but like whatever it is, he, he can't stay healthy. He's got this, uh, an LCL sprain, I believe. Is that so so like the lateral knee? Yeah. Lateral collateral ligament. That doesn't sound right, but what does the L stand for in LCL? No, I think that's right. Right. Cause there's lateral, there's medial. Well, when I put LCL, the first thing that comes up is less than container load. So <laughs> I just what I, I it might be right. I just lateral collateral sounds strange for me, but uh, an LCL sprain, which when I when I looked it up, like yeah, the, lateral collateral ligament. <laughs> there you go. The like potential timelines for recovery like varied wildly, so it's really based on severity. But I guess like the latest update we have, which does not sound great, is that Doc Rivers said today that he watched film and did nothing else like no physical work whatsoever. And that makes sense. Like they probably just want to keep him off of that knee, give him as much rest as possible before the next round. But which could start as early as Saturday, by the way, if the Celtics eliminate the Hawks in game five Celtics Sixers starts Saturday game two would be Monday. Even the optimistic report was that like early next week, he could be back. I would be stunned if he played Monday. So if the Celtics finish off the Hawks at home in game five, as they should, you're looking at most likely Embiid not playing until game three. You can take an optimistic view and say, well, they might've lost the first two in Boston anyway. And, and, you know, had to hold serve at home, but I don't know, man, it's, I don't think it's that simple. I, I, I going down to nothing to Boston would be really tough. And it would be really hard to avoid that. If Embiid misses the first two games now, yes, it's a bummer, but it is like, you. it's not that surprising. Unfortunately, like you said, I mean, I remember when we had Trill on a few months ago, friend of the show, Trill, and I said that like as encouraged as I can be by the Sixers at various points in the season and even the postseason, I can also pretty much take to the bank that in addition to some like random hardened playoff no-shows here and there, Embiid's going to end up with some kind of injury that either sidelines him or limits him at some point in the playoffs. Like it's, it's, it's literally every year this happens. And yeah, it's unfortunate. Now, in terms of like what you said with the flopping, like I don't see it as... He deserve no, for, he doesn't deserve to be hurt, okay, because of it. But I do think that the manner in which he flops and falls and all that makes him more susceptible to injury. And the counter to that would be that Embiid has spoken before about how, I think he has spoken before, about how like early in his career when he was coming off all those injuries, like he was basically taught to fall down to avoid injuries and like how to fall and all that. And, and by nature of him just being larger than everyone else on the court, him falling is going to be more dangerous than a smaller guy falling. I get that. That's fine. But it's not just that. Like, unless you're a Sixers fan, okay, in that case, I can understand it because you're a fan and part of being a fan, like a crazy fanatic is not having logic sometimes. If you're not a Sixers fan and you don't think Joel Embiid knows what he's doing sometimes with the way that he flops and falls around other players, I would say you're naive at best. So I'm not going to say he deserves to be hurt because he flops, but I am going to say that I think he knows what he's doing sometimes when he puts other players at risk. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I saw the the video that uh, was going around with some of the some of the falls that he had in that series against the Nets, and I saw you commented on that with this very point about his dangerous manner of falling. Sometimes I think one of those falls injured Danny Green, like tore his ACL a couple post seasons ago. Um, but you know that has nothing to do with how I feel about this particular injury and just Embiid's right. postseason injury history in general, which is just that it completely bums me out. I want nothing more than to see him like have a fully healthy postseason run. And for the purposes of this postseason, I mean, I've just been looking forward to this Sixers-Celtics yeah. clash for so long. That's a championship-level second-round series. My God, man. It's just, I, I'm just going to be despondent if it, if it isn't what it could be as a result of Joel Embiid's health. And that seems like it's going to be the case. So for now, I guess all I can do is hope against hope that the Hawks can find some way to extend this series. But I don't have much faith in them doing that, not only because they were overmatched to begin with, but now because they won't even have DeJounte Murray for this game five, because for whatever reason, he decided to go up and like almost headbutt the official <laughs> at the end of that game four, basically wound up getting suspended for what the NBA called a verbal abuse and inappropriate contact with the official. Just like, Maybe he was just ready for the season to be over and to get his vacation started, but like just like the most blatant, idiotic yeah. suspension that you could possibly get for I don't even know what he was upset about. Like I I didn't watch that entire him. game, but like I watched enough of it to feel like the officiating was like, I don't know, relatively balanced. Yeah, and I don't know if there was a specific play, but one way or another, like, come on, man. Between this, which is obviously the most egregious example. Um, the off season when he had that uh, issue with Boncaro at the, like the pro am, and there was someone else. Was it during the preseason? He did something to another rookie. I can't. I, there was. There was a third thing, but he's made like a few weird boneheaded decisions over the last year. Um. Anyway, yeah. So the Hawks are probably done. The Hawks yeah. are almost certainly done. Good riddance. Let's be real. Good riddance. Um, and that unfortunately means that yeah, they can bump up the start of that Celtics Sixers series and. That means that Embiid's probably not going to factor in maybe to the first couple games of it. So that sucks. Um, I I know you wanted to talk about Ime Udoka going to Houston, but we're running kind of long here already, and I just feel like that can be a topic maybe for another day. I don't really have a ton to say about it. I just thought it was surprising because if you remember on the last show when Nick mm -hmm. Nurse got fired in Toronto, I went on that whole rant about how usually when like the top two or two to five NBA newsbreakers have this like random kind of tidbit and stay with it so for so long as Woj did when it came out of nowhere months ago that Nurse might be out in Toronto and Udoka might be in and Nurse might go to Houston and then you start seeing the chess pieces move you're like all right like this is just what's gonna happen we should like he probably isn't wrong about this so I just figured I should somewhat address the fact that well that didn't end up being the case uh you know Nick Nurse still doesn't have a job as we speak in the NBA at least, and, and Udoka's in Houston. So I just thought that was really interesting and it'll be really fascinating to see how that now impacts and, you know, causes like the domino effect in other jobs or where Nick Nurse ends up. Because even just honestly, like I, I could spend 20 minutes talking about just like the various options I think that could be out there for Nick Nurse, including some jobs that maybe we don't think will be open right now, but could be depending on how these playoffs go. But so yeah, to your point on that, I think we can save that for another day. Well, I thought we already decided on a previous episode that Nick Nurse is going to end really? up coaching Philly next year. Yeah. So, well, 
Hey, listen, I mean, you heard it here first, folks. If, uh, if Embiid's out first, like, I mean, I don't know. Then, and then maybe Doc gets the excuse of like, well, Joel Embiid was out again, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I think Doc might be running out of excuses at this point. I mean, as much as I think that would be a valid one, I ultimately I, I think like they'd be within their rights to let him go regardless. Yeah. Uh, but that is all TBD. So yeah, let's leave all that there. We're going to skip out on Make or Miss and a fan shout out this week. I apologize. We will get back to those soon. But uh, again, we had a lot to get to this episode and we've already gone kind of long. So we're going to get out of here and hopefully we'll have time to get to uh, a shout out and maybe some make or miss on Friday's episode. Uh, I think that's that's the plan to record again on Friday, right, Cash? Yes, sir. So uh, we'll talk to you then. Uh, but for now, signing off for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the rock. 